There is a real devil, brethren, and Satan has done a masterful job in splitting up and almost disintegrating the church of God in our time. A lot of us haven't thought of it that way, but he is the ultimate enemy. And if you doubt that there's a Satan, and if you understand what happened to the church in the last 15 to 20 years, you can begin to grasp how powerful Satan is. Because many of us worked and worked and worked decade after decade to help Mr. Armstrong build the Worldwide Church of God. I was in it when it was still the Radio Church of God. And the second vice president going out on some of the early baptizing tours and helping Dr. Hay edit the early good news and later the plain truth when they let us get the plain truth out. And the work was growing and growing and we were all together. And all of a sudden, pow, the whole thing came apart in a remarkable way. And that was not an accident. I'm sure God knew that that would happen overall because he prophesied the weakness we would have. He didn't prophesy the split as such. But he is not stupid. He understands human nature. But he allowed the devil to confuse people very, very powerfully. And so we have to understand that fact. And we need to understand that there is a real devil and how to overcome that devil. We really do, because Satan is going to be striking at us. And I'll tell you, when you see the job that Satan has done upon tens of thousands of our brethren, upon thousands of our students, and as I said it last week, I believe I mentioned that one of the great sorrows of my life is the fact that so many thousands of students that I personally taught have just gone off. I was not the only one to teach them, so I don't want to take all the blame. I always say that too. Mr. Armstrong taught them, and... Her, and Herman Hay taught them, and Ted Armstrong, and others, but I was one of their main teachers, and they have just gone completely away from the truth of God. And that's very sad, but that is exactly what happened. Now, I want to read you a clipping here that's kind of interesting, but it shows something that I think is very important and very significant, and it's in the t this morning's paper, or was it yesterday morning's paper? Uh, this morning's paper, the Charlotte Observer, right here, uh, Bishop. Satan may go to heaven. Here is a bishop in another church. Kind of amusing, really, when you understand it. Bishop Carlton Pearson, the nationally prominent evangelical preacher, has already stirred one controversy for preaching the doctrine of inclusion, that everyone is saved no matter what they do. I guess you can, you can take a shotgun and try to shoot God, and you'll still get into heaven, according to him. And uh, then... Uh, Pearson now says he believes that, quote, it is reasonable, end quote, that Satan himself go to heaven, period. It's possible, he says, that God have, could have made a mistake in condemning Satan uh, to eternity in hell. Quote, is God not big enough to change the devil? Uh, Pearson said uh, in an interview, quote, I can conceive of the devil bowing down and repenting to God, saying, I com competed with you, but I was wrong. I'm sorry. Of course, other evangelical leaders are very upset about this because he is an evangelical and along with them, supposedly a Bible-thumping uh, uh, preacher that's out on the television and so on. And uh, Pearson's theory, quote, I'm reading more from the article now, Pearson's theory alarms other evangelicals because of the following he has gained over more than 20 years of ministry. In the 1980s, he became one of the country's first African-American evangelists leading the way for others, televangelists, including leading the way for others, including Creflo Dollar, Eddie Long, and T.D. Jakes. And it tells more about him. But at any rate, he's been very popular, and yet he, of course, is going off the track in that particular way that even alarms them. But you'd be surprised how much many of these evangelicals and others in the world of Protestantism disagree with one another. They're in absolute confusion. This is Babylon. God calls it Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And the word Babylon, look it up, the word Babylon literally means confusion. That's what they're into. They're in great confusion. They just do not understand. They just do not get it. And, of course, uh, part of this problem with this man is that he does not remotely understand uh, the reality of Satan, what kind of Satan uh, being Satan is, how Satan had millions of years to learn God's way, deliberately, knowingly decided to fight God, and no doubt God has given him every chance as he would any personality, being a God of love, but he's not done that. He's not turned back for millions of years, and he does not understand, of course, uh, the very 
true character that God wants to develop in us. God's not going to make Satan repent. God's not going to make you repent or me repent or anyone else. He doesn't work like that. True character is developed by someone voluntarily because they want to, repenting and coming to God and giving their lives to God. And Satan has, has shown to God and God understands because he's predicted in the Bible, in this book, as you know, that Satan will be put in the bottomless pit. He's predicted Satan's outcome here. And yet these men are so mixed up, so totally apart from the Bible that they don't get it. So this is interesting and interesting about Satan, yet it's kind of amusing that this man thinks Satan could actually go to heaven. Let's turn to Matthew 13. I'm not going to give you all the traditional verses about the origin of Satan. Most of you know that. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he was Lucifer, shining star of the dawn. He rebelled against God. He was thrown down to this earth. And his name was changed from Lucifer, meaning light bringer, to adversary, which means enemy. Satan literally means, that's the meaning of the word in the Hebrew now, enemy or adversary. And so he is the enemy. But in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, here is the Son of God speaking. He had been giving, as you know, the parable of the, of the sower and the seed here. And most of you know that. So let's just get to the interpretation here to save time. Verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes down and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So the wicked one. Satan is called again and again the wicked one. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Now, brethren, we need to understand that. When people hear our program, for instance, Satan will immediately try to cause the baby to cry. He'll try to cause the radio to come on if they're watching it on television. He'll send someone somehow to provoke them to call them on the telephone. He will get their minds off of that program. He will get their minds off of God and God's kingdom and God's word being preached every way he can. I don't mean every time a baby cries is because Satan did it. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had six children and, and seven grandchildren. But I'm just saying Satan will use any device he can. You know what I mean? And, of course, it's not just the child crying. It's the people's reaction to that. Here was Mary and Martha sitting at the feet of the Son of God. And Martha, you know, was a very wonderful woman, of course. And most of the things about her were good. But she got, oh, well, I want to give you some tea. And, well, let's bring some cookies. And she kept bustling around. And here was the Son of God coming to teach her the whole purpose of human existence. And it said, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. And Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken from her. She is willing to sit still and listen, listen, and drink in the Word of God, Jesus was saying in effect, and really try to get the point. So you have to understand that Satan will try to distract you. He will try to distract me in a thousand different ways. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately uh, receives it with joy. Oh boy, I'm going to come into the church and start to attend. Yet he has no root in himself. Some people start to attend our church and they, they just think, well, this is really good, it's the truth. But then one or two little things, they come in and say, well, there's not enough social fellowship. And uh, there's no uh, uh, youth program. Or we want a great big choir to sing to us up here. Well, that would be nice. We used to have that sometimes and worldwide. But that isn't what saved people. They came apart in spite of that. You see what I mean? That didn't save things. The big choir doesn't save you. The youth program doesn't save you. The kiddies room doesn't save you. And nothing else saves you. The truth of God, God saves you through the word of God and the spirit of God and the shed blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's what you need to learn about, not those other things. We'd like to have and hope we will have a bigger, better choir here in due time in many of our churches. We hope we can have some more youth programs. We want that, and we'll try to do that. All those things are okay, but never get distracted by that stuff. Keep your mind on the big picture. The big picture is that in God's true church, you're learning the Word of God. You're learning the way of God. You're worshiping and sharing along with people which is gives, can give you very encouraging fellowship and a balance in your lives. And then you can be part of the work of God. And the work of God, as we sang here, is getting the message out to all the world. And that's what we're trying to do, going on station after station, as Jesus commanded. Go ye into all the nations. And we're doing that as best we can with the full truth of God. So here's the stony places. They receive the word with joy, but they're shallow. 
For when per tribulation or persecution arises, they have some kind of trial because of the word, he immediately stumbles. Well, boy, I didn't know I might lose my job for the Sabbath. Well, boy, my relatives are turning against me. That's it. I guess I'm out of this church. I'll get in a more convenient church. Now, he received the seed among the thorns. Here's the third group. Is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. Now, brethren, let's think about it again. Remember, God says a number of different ways of the Bible, as we will see. Satan is the God of this world. He is the one who influences this world through the media and constantly on television, radio, and all the magazines. They'll have this ad, you know, over and over again. You need this. You deserve this. Step up to the better life. Grab this. Buy this. Take our stuff. And their mind is getting you on material things or see this movie or go do this something and constantly distracting you. So the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, trying to get rich, and Americans are really heavy into that now, choke the word and he becomes unfruitful because these attitudes of the world choke the word. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and bears fruit. That's the key. He is able to help others. He's help, able to have part in the work of God. He bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some 60, some 30. These are round numbers. It doesn't mean you personally bring in 60 new people, but maybe through your prayers and tithes and offerings and your example and every other way you might do that or a hundred people, or many thousands of people, and indirectly, you can indirectly bring in, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people and help them be in the first resurrection, the better resurrection, through your zealous participation in the work of God and bear fruit, because that's God, what God wants us to do, all of us. Back in John 8, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 44. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day. And if you look back in the earlier verses, that is who he was talking to, the Pharisees. And they were looked upon as the strictest sect of the Jews who kept the law more carefully. And they were, they were looked on as that. And he was talking directly to them. You see that in verse 13, and he just keeps on talking. So he's talking to the Pharisees, perhaps many of the other Jewish leaders as well. He said... Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. They provoked him to say that. Now, he didn't lose his temper. I don't mean that. He, Jesus did not do that. But I think they inspired him, let's say, to say that because he said, we're not born of fornication. They'd heard the rumor about Jesus' birth and about Mary getting pregnant too early and all. So here, all these years later, they threw that in his face. And Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Now, notice from the very beginning, what was Satan like? The minute he rebelled against God after no doubt millions and perhaps billions of years, as we understand years, because remember out in space, I don't think there are years. We on this little planet out in the darkness of space we call the earth, we calculate the years by how often we travel around the sun or vice versa and the, the moon travels around us and all this kind of thing, you see. But of course, up in heaven, God has a different solar system and he looks out over the whole universe. But he understands our years. But in terms of our years, it was perhaps billions or trillions of years ago. You say, well, that's a long time, yes. But when you're God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. Your whole concept of things is different. You really is. You're going to be in a different dimension in a few years if you make it into God's kingdom. And you'll not think in terms of just physical years to the same degree we do now. But anyway, Satan had plenty of time to plan, to decide what he's going to do, to decide if he wanted to repent, to go along with this great being who had all knowledge, who had created him, all beauty, all love and kindness and mercy and patience and everything good was from God, and he knew that, but he said, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be like God. I'll ascend up to the heights, he said in Luke, I mean in Isaiah 14. Decide, I'm going to be as good as you are. I'm going to rebel against God and fight God. You are a murderer. He had the spirit of competition and the spirit of murder. If he could have killed God, he would have. He had the spirit of murder in his heart, and his followers get into that spirit very quickly, as we see all over the world and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
You say, well, these people have truth here and there. Well, they have partial truth, but none of them have perfect truth. None of them have complete truth. Mr. Armstrong used to say, if you're just a little bit off, people say, well, that's not too bad. Here's this worldly church, and they're just a little bit off. They're really good people, and so, you know, it doesn't make any difference if we go over there. Well, I'm not trying to frighten you from going over there. I just want you to think. If Satan gets you to go over there, that's your responsibility. But if you're just a little bit off, what is a little bit off? The scientists know that if they're aiming aiming at a rocket at Mars and they're just one thousandth of an inch off or something of the way they're aiming it, it could cause them to be off by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles by the time they got to Mars. Just a little bit off. Just a little bit off. What if you're putting something in food or in a drink and it's all wonderful except just a little tiny bit of cyanide? Just a little, no, not, not much, just a little bit. It'll kill you. It'll kill you dead, as they say. <laughs> That's kind of repetitive, of course, but using a modern expression, it will kill you dead a little bit. And that's the point Mr. Armstrong made, and that's what we have to understand. I remember a very fine, successful uh, member. Uh, he was a millionaire, not a multi-multi-millionaire like Bill Gates, but probably worth two or three million back at the time that a million dollars was worth, I think, at least seven or eight times as much as it is today. This was back in the uh, late 19, mid and late 1950s. His name was Milton Ryman. He was from Pennsylvania, and he had, uh, and his wife had immigrated to California, and they were, had a beautiful, great, big uh, uh, turkey ranch. They raised millions and millions of turkeys. They sound, may sound very pedestrian, but uh, they had lots of people doing the grunt work, as we say. I'm sure they did a lot of it to get it started, but they had all these people out there hired and feed the turkeys and take care of them in all these cages, and they had, I guess, hundreds of acres. They had a great big beautiful home out in the woods and out in the edge of town, outside of town, and he entertained people, and the church was very generous, had a great big swimming pool, a big house. I stayed at his place four or five times, maybe more, and you got to stay there on the way to Yosemite National Park. He would invite us to come by and stay there. And he was a successful, intelligent man. Richard David Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong's elder son, and I were conducting an evangelistic campaign in 1956 in Fresno, California. And Milton Ryman had his son-in-law. Now, he was already in his late 50s or 60s back then. I think probably 60s, but he was getting a little older. He had his son-in-law drive this big Cadillac. He had this big Cadillac, and they came down. I think they missed only one time. Dick and I had this campaign. Mr. Armstrong set it up along the line of his old campaign. Now, this was before TV got going real good, so people were willing to come. They wouldn't do that today. But it was five solid weeks, six nights a week, 30 services in a row. And so I got to preach 16 out of the, out of the 30, and then I was preaching on the Sabbath at least half the time beside, and then I was grading papers that I had left over most behind, grading papers during that summer. Anyway, uh, in my cook-in motel or whatever to save money, we had one of those places with the kitchenette motel that we stayed in during that time and got a weekly rate. But at any rate, uh, Milton Ryman came down with his son-in-law every night but one or two for 30 services in a row and then came on into the church. And he'd been studying for years, of course, and hearing Mr. Armstrong on the radio, and he was willing to give up business acquaintances and this and that to come into God's church. And uh, he told me how he told his wife this, which made her mad at the time. She was a member of a mainstream uh, Protestant denomination. I don't want to name it. Some of you might have been that or something. Uh, But at any rate, she was a nice lady, but he, you know, like sometimes when you first come in the truth, you start preaching to your relatives and try to get them converted, quote, unquote. So he was doing that. And uh, he said, look, Martha, her name was not Martha now, I'm just quoting this other. He said, look, Martha, he said, your church has everything wrong. He says, name one single doctrine that they have straight. They don't baptize properly. They just sprinkle, you know, and they don't even really understand what to repent of before you're baptized. They have the wrong concept of God, the wrong concept of Christ, Christ, little Lord Jesus, the way in a manger. They have the doctrine of the Trinity. They have the doctrine of Christmas and Easter. They keep the day of the sun rather than God's Sabbath. They keep all the pagan holidays rather than God's holy days. And he analyzed the whole thing. There's not one single doctrine they really have straight when you understand it. 
course, that didn't go over too well with her, I think, at the time. <laughs> but uh, he was very explained it in detail. I won't take time to you, but if you think it through, you can tell me, do they have one single doctrine straight? The churches of this world, frankly, don't. They do not. Now, the Baptists are good people. A lot of them around here, so I've got to be raise my, lower my voice here. But at any rate, uh, I understand there are 55,000 here in Charlotte, in the Charlotte area. But there are a lot of very sincere people. But, of course, they, they do immerse people, which is fine, but they have no understanding of God's law, really. They talk about it, but they'll go to war and kill. They'll break God's Sabbath every single Sabbath and lots of other things they don't understand. And so when it comes to repent, what do they repent of? They don't know what to repent of at all. They're not taught that. So how can they understand? They're not taught it. And, of course, in many cases, they're baptized when they're only 12, 14, 15, 16 years old, and they don't really get it at all. They can't make that kind of decision at that time. And we came to realize ourselves, you should no more baptize a 14-year-old than you should marry a 14-year-old, you know, perform the ceremony for them. It's not going to work out. It's not God's way. It's a mature decision. Baptism is a burial of the old self. And to make a commitment to the God of the Bible for all eternity, Jesus said in Luke 14, verses 25 on, count the cost. A kid can't count the cost. He has to be in his late teens, or early 20s at least, before he's able to do that. But I'm just going, you know, Milton Ryman explained that. Well, years later, he died and uh, he was a faithful man in God's church. He was on the board of the Radio Church of God for a number of years. And Mr. Armstrong came to know him later and respected him. And Dr. He and I, I think, knew him better because we'd known him longer. But anyway, uh, his wife, after his death, was converted and began to come to church. So maybe he did make, he made her mad at first, but she got to thinking. And he was a very good man too, and I'm sure his example helped. She came to realize that. But that's true. Satan is a liar. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He deceives people. He is a master deceiver. And so we have to really understand that fact, brethren, about Satan the devil. And we have to understand how he is going to water things down, how he's going to cause many of you to get into lethargy, because this is the Laodicean era, and you'll fall into lethargy. Mr. Davis and I were talking. He mentioned how the whole country is no doubt this way somewhat, and I'm sure it's affecting God's church as well. We won this Iraq war quicker and more powerfully than many people thought we would. I still think there'll be probably a fallout later, a weakening of the nation because of that, because of the whole Muslim world, but we don't know. We don't know. We're not absolutely sure of that. That certainly seems to be the case, but we'll see. But at any rate, right now, as you know, they're strutting pretty high. We won the war. We won the war. And now they're thinking the economy will get better. We'll, be, we'll go back, get fat and sassy, and go right back to our old ways again. That's exactly what could happen in this country. And, of course, that would hurt the country, but it would hurt God's people, too. They think, well, the Lord delays his coming. My Lord delays his coming. Let's take it easy. Let's not get fired up about doing the work of the great God and ultimately, personally, I should say, preparing for his kingdom with all of our hearts. Satan can cause those things to happen. Let's turn to John 12. I'm going on through the book of John here for a while. Here again, the Son of God knew about the devil. And the devil was a very real spirit personality to Jesus Christ. He said here in John 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to, him, to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. That term lifted up indicated crucifixion. So he was letting people know Satan is on the way. He knew Satan was going to come and personally possess Judas Iscariot. That's what happened, remember, at that point uh, just uh, before the Passover why Satan came into Judas and possessed him. He wasn't just influenced. He was possessed by the devil. The devil wanted to destroy Christ. So he said, now the ruler and your King James, the old King James says prince. The prince of this world comes. That's a powerful statement. Who is the real ruler of this whole world? Satan is. And Jesus said that very, very clearly. And he, he's going to be cast out. 
Then, of course, he said in chapter 14, turn to John 14 and verse uh, 12, if you would, or verse uh, uh, 30, I mean, John 14 and verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler or the prince of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Satan has nothing in me. So we need to understand that and to realize Jesus regarded Satan as a very real, very powerful being and someone that we ought to really know about. One of the keys to winning any battle, brethren, is one that George Patton knew, and I think I've given this example, but remember the example. General Patton was one of the best field strategists that we had. He did not have the organizational or the coordinating ability of Eisenhower. He was not as charming to get the different men to work together. He tended to be a prima donna, as did, uh, uh, you know, one or two of the others, uh, but uh, Field Marshal Montgomery and, uh, and MacArthur and so on. But uh, he was very brilliant, and he studied for hours and hours the exact military manuals that General Urban Rommel had studied and got them translated, even some of them that were not translated into the English language, or maybe he knew the German. He was a brilliant man, Patton was. And when you see the movie Patton or saw it 20 years ago, uh, you know, you don't get all that background and that's a Hollywood movie. But he was a brilliant man in spite of his mistakes. And he learned exactly the way Rommel thought. He had to know how Rommel thought, what he, what he learned, what he did before, and what he would be likely to do again. Do you follow me? You need to know that to a degree about Satan. You do not need to study spiritism from all these books and get your mind on that. That, frankly, could get you all disconglubrated and discouraged, and Satan might take advantage of that, but you can study it in the Bible and see, and I'm giving some of it up to you here today in a positive way. Know your enemy. Satan is real. He's not a figment of somebody's imagination, just the idea of bad in general. He is a very clever, powerful, absolutely beautiful. He had beautiful music, it describes, as Mr. Armstrong has done way back when. He was personally beautiful. And one of his biggest churches, or I should say not one of them, his biggest single church, has beautiful music. Absolutely gorgeous, magnificently beautiful things over in their main church. And they, you go there and you're just astonished at how big and how beautiful, real gold and silver and emeralds and everything all over the place. John looked on it with great admiration, was astonished. And if you're there, it may strike you the same way, how big and how beautiful this thing is. And this system is very, very wealthy. And they have beautiful, they have more choirs and more this and that than any other church on earth. But does that make it right? No, no. Satan has all that stuff. And you need to understand that. He does have beautiful things. I know in the Christmas season, I don't like to hear the words so much because uh, we don't worship the Virgin Mary. But once in a while, I'll hear some symphony orchestra playing on the radio, you know, and they're playing Ave Maria with, as my sister was playing the violin, they'll, they'll have a beautiful uh, violin obligato, you know, just playing the melody. And it's a very beautiful music. That piece, you know, Ave, I better not start there. <laughs> it's a very beautiful piece of music. You can't fault the music, but what it represents, you see, it's a little off because what it represents is worshiping the Virgin Mary. And that's wrong. So anyway, uh, this is the thing you need to understand, how real Satan is. And he certainly is going to make you and me, if he can, become Laodicean. He's going to cause us to be lethargic. He's going to cause us to water things down. And certainly he seems to be putting a stumbling block in front of the work even now in a number of ways. We had a terrible time getting a nice place in which to meet. And now it seems we're having an even more terrible time finding a TV studio, which is unusual. We didn't have anywhere near that trouble. But I think Satan senses that we're right on the verge of something big. He's not stupid. And he's going to put every stumbling block in our path that he can. So make it difficult, difficult, difficult for us to really get going. He does not want the proclamation of the gospel, the true gospel of the kingdom of God, to go out powerfully. That is inimical to everything he has in mind. So he's going to try to block that. You can say, well, you're just imagining, Mr. Meredith, and you don't understand, and so on. No, I don't think so. 
I used to hear Mr. Armstrong say things about the devil once in a while, and I didn't always understand it the way I came to later. But you look in the Bible, and you see that God guides his human leaders. It doesn't mean they never make a mistake. But overall, if someone's in the office that I am, they are being prayed for by thousands of people all over the world, and God does guide them overall. And if I turn into a bad guy, God will kick me out of here just like I'm rocket propelled, you know, to get out of here. He'll take care of me. I mean that. I know that. So God is in charge. But as long as I'm in this office, and as long as Mr. Ames and Mr. Bryce and our other leaders are there, and God is guiding them, uh, God does give us a degree of understanding and perception, perhaps more than the average member, not because we're smarter but because of the office we hold. And you should respect that office, every one of you, and understand that. I think there is something going on that Satan is trying to block us in a lot of different ways from getting the work really going powerfully. So let's pray about that as well. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel is veiled. People's minds are shut off from it whose minds the God of this age, not the God of gods, not the God of all ages, but the God of this age, who is Satan the devil, you see, has blinded those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan has blinded people. They just don't get it. They have a concept of God that is a little bit off. This fellow that has this idea of Satan going to heaven, of course, that's uh, very obvious. That's amusing. He just doesn't get it. They have a different concept of Christ. And, of course, they think another article in this morning's paper was interesting, and I'm going to tear it out and use it later, by this local minister here, one of the big churches here, telling about the Protestant concept of uh, salvation by grace alone and showing how important that was and how Martin Luther got all upset because of all the Catholic uh, rituals and works. And so he turned against that and came to believe it was, you know, salvation by grace alone. And, of course, Martin Luther stuck the word alone. You look up Romans 3.28. I might just turn there. This is not in my notes. I'll throw this in for free, all right? And uh, (laughs) so Romans uh, 3.28 you find Paul writes, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You see, you don't, not, in other words, that's something apart. It's not against, but apart from, in addition to the deeds of the law, whatever, you're justified by faith. Do you see the word alone in you there? All of you look. Does anyone find the word alone in there? Raise your hand if you see it in there. Of course, it's not in there. But Dr. Luther, when he was translating from the Latin into the German, he put the word sola alone in there, and well, he, uh, it wasn't sola in the uh, in the German, of course, whatever it was originally, and he put it in there alone. And one of his associates said, "Well, Doctor Luther, why are you sticking this in there? It's not in the text." He said, "What I have written, that I have written." Okay, which keep still. I'm going to do it anyway. See. And because uh, he was so mad at the idea of the Catholic canon law and all of their works and rigmarole that they got people into, that he wanted to go without realizing it. You know, Mr. David John Hill used to say, sometimes we get down in the ditch over here and we realize we're in this ditch and then we get all excited and we run across the road and jump in the other ditch. <laughs> and of course, we don't want to be in either ditch. We want to be in the middle of the road. But that's what he did unwittingly. He got out of this ditch of that kind of wrong law, canon law and rituals and so on and and ceremonies and responsive readings and memorized prayers and all the rest of it. And he ran across and jumped in the other ditch and completely did away with the idea of obeying God's spiritual law of the Ten Commandments. And most Protestants today think they're doing it. Again, that's where they're a little off. They talk about it. They say, we believe the commandments. And of course, I was taught in my Methodist Sunday school to memorize the Ten Commandments in the short form. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, period. (laughs) You notice what's being left out? The seventh day is the Sabbath, the eternal your God, and so on. And it points back to creation. Read the whole thing back in Exodus. They leave that part out. They just try to make Sunday the Sabbath and very cleverly slip in Sunday, the day of the sun, in place of God's holy Sabbath day, which is the sign between man and God. It points to the true God as the creator 
He rested after his creation on the seventh day. Not any seventh day, the seventh day. And he points that out a number of times in the Bible. Very important. But they don't understand that. So if Satan can get you a little off here or a little off there, uh, he has got you in that sense. So that's a very important thing to understand. Anyway, Satan is the god of this world, uh, and he is the one who deceives. And we really want to understand that he is the primary deceiver, brethren. Certainly we're deceived by the world, but who is the god of the world? We might be deceived by this or that religion, but who is the god of, of, of the world behind all these religions when you really understand it? Jesus indicated that, and Paul did and others, very, very carefully. So we do have to understand that, that Satan is behind all this stuff. He's behind the world's media. He's behind the world's politics. He's behind the world's educational system. All of it. One other scripture, not scripture at all. This is far from scripture. This is from this morning's paper as well. No, yesterday's, uh, Thursday's paper. I guess it was. No, yesterday's, Friday's. Scientists agree, genes aren't destiny. The Charlotte Observer, uh, yesterday morning. They've had this big... Uh, uh, kind of a, a, a seminar on it with a bunch of leading scholars, a battery of geneticists, psychologists, psychiatrists, philosophers, and legal experts debated these questions at a recent conference on behavioral studies, behavioral genetics, the study of genes and human behavior, on how much is a person's destiny fixed for all time in the, in the letters of his or her DNA. Are you doomed from birth because of your DNA, your genetic makeup to be an alcoholic, to be a, a, a star athlete, or to be violent, or as they later explained, to be a homosexual? Is it built in you? As you know, a lot of the homosexuals are now trying to say, and that's one reason that people are so sympathetic with that, because they say, well, they can't help it. They're born that way. Now, that is one of the most damnable lies of Satan the devil, right there, by the way. You are not born to be an alcoholic. You are not born to be a homosexual. You are not born to be a murderer. You're not born to be anything like this. And this great big battery of top experts ended up agreeing on that. The consensus was clear. I'm reading now. Genes strongly influence behavior, but do not control it. And they go on about the family has an influence in your, your environment. Quote, genes set the stage, but our brains not our genes, ultimately control our behavior, end of quotation, said Stephen Hyman, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, then uh, he all went on to say, there is no such thing as a gene for grumpiness. Now, some of you are too grumpy. Uh, or a serial killer. Well, I was born that way. I can't help it. I've got to go out and kill people, you know. No, there's no such thing. Agreement about genes and behavior keep popping up as society wrestles with such issues as whether to execute someone who is mentally ill or whether homosexuality is inborn or a matter of choice. And this whole group uh, was sponsored by the American Association for the Advancement of Science went into this. And now it shows how the pendulum used to be that genetics controlled everything and then later they said, well, environment controls everything and my mother didn't love me, so therefore I've got to go out and, and beat up on other people, you know, all this stuff, back and forth. But now the pendulum has uh, settled between these extremes. Both environmental and genetic determination, determinism are wrong, uh, this other doctor said. And uh, we have uh, problems from both, but we have to uh, act on what is right. Neither bad genes nor bad environment can free offenders from the responsibility for their crimes, said Harold Edgar, Edgar a, a professor at Columbia University. So you see what I mean. They finally come to realize, no, you don't have to be a homosexual. And that's important that you understand and you brethren around the world because that's one of the big things the homosexual communities get into. And you know how wrong that is. God does not condemn people for things they cannot help. He would never do that. A righteous God would never do that. And yet God himself said that back here in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Neither fornicators, Oh, well, I, I wasn't loved as a boy, so I've got to go out and do this, they'll say. 
No, that doesn't make you to do anything. You have to decide what you're going to do. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those will inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, to help all of you who've been those things in the church here, and you brethren around the world, and he said, some of such were some of you. Yes, we've all been something or another like that probably as we grew up. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God can clean you up and help you get over any misuse of liquor, any misuse of sex, any misuse of money, any misuse of anything, you see, through the power of His Spirit. You have no excuse, though, if you're converted to say, uh, you know, the devil made me or that your genes made you or, you know, your family made you or something like that. Because remember back in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God says clearly through Paul, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. He will never put a temptation on you that's too strong for you to bear. Never! That's a promise. You're not tempted to be homosexual. You're not tempted to be a drunkard or anything else beyond your ability to overcome it if you turn to God. Whatever it is, you can overcome it. He will never put that strong a temptation on any of us. And that is a very, very important. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll begin in verse uh, 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And brethren, again, you have to understand that Satan is very, very clever. He is not stupid. He has a perverted intelligence, but he's absolutely brilliant in understanding how to maneuver your mind and your emotions to do something wrong. Put on the whole armor of God. How do you overcome Satan, the following verses give you the overall picture of how to do it. Listen carefully, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Understand that part. Satan is in charge of this whole society. He can get at you through television. He can get at you through the movies. He can get at you through these computer games. He can get at you through your sexual lust, your desire to drink just that one extra drink, and then once you've had that, you're more relaxed, and then you have that one extra drink beyond that, and then you're more relaxed, and you'll get that one more drink beyond that, pretty soon you're soused. You say, well, I wasn't totally drunk. No, you're able to get up and walk, just barely. (laughs) But that is not what God wants. He wants us to be able to be alert, to be able to study his word and to pray and to serve his people, not to be on marijuana or liquor or stuff that blows your mind and makes you unable to function as a Christian. So Satan is able to get at you in a lot of different ways against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Understand that, brethren, there's a whole host of of wicked spirits. They're all over. You don't need to be terrified about it, but they are there. Therefore, you need to understand that. That's one part of knowing your enemy. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Paul writes. Don't just take up part of it, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, brethren, the evil day has not yet come. I like to point that out. We're in an evil time, but I'll tell you, we're going to be tempted in years to come way beyond perhaps what we've been tempted so far in our lives. And we need to really understand when Satan finally makes that attack on God and comes down here absolutely furious against God and tries to assault God's people. Some of you may pay with your lives to obey God. I may pay with my life in order to obey God. And we have to understand the powerful thing that's going to come down on us. So understand that. Stand therefore. Don't run. Stand. They say if a lion is charging you, the, the guides in Africa tell you, if a lion is charging you, don't run. You cannot run a lion anyway. Just turn and look at it, unafraid as best you can, 
and normally the lion will turn away if it sees you're not afraid. We had a young woman who was jogging all alone out in San Diego five or six years ago. Some of them from there remember reading about it out east and uh, uh, where we used to hike out there. And uh, Yeah, Cuyamaca Park. And she was, I think, not using wisdom. She was, hike, she was uh, jogging just at sunset or sunrise. One, those two are the main hunting times for animals. And she was all alone this young woman. Well, normally a smaller person shouldn't be doing that in places where they have uh, cougars or mountain lions or they give all these same big cats different names in different places, different, different slightly different species sometimes, but they're all essentially the same, mountain lions, cougars, bobcats, so on. And this cougar jumped on her and killed her. And it showed the way they found her dead that she was running from the cougar, you see, well, of course, she should have known she wasn't going to outrun a cougar. She should have turned and looked right at it. They say stand tall and look right at the animal, but basically it's better to have two of you together. So that's what you'd better learn to do. Don't run from the devil. Face him. Fight the battle. Understand what you're dealing with. And that's very, very important. So uh, stand still. Stand, therefore, having, your, uh, having girded your waist with truth. Now, brethren, your waist is this area here. What is in here? Your sex drive, your drive for food, your drive for liquor. A lot of your drives originate right here. Is sex evil? No, God made it. If sex is, is uh, you know, we would banish sex, then we wouldn't be here, would we? <laughs> there wouldn't be any human beings. The earth would be a very desolate place. That's not God's purpose at all. Is liquor wrong? No. A bottle of wine is not a sin. It is the wrong use of a thing that is sin, breaking God's law, using too much of it or whatever, but have it guided by truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So guarding your heart, Mr. Uh, uh, ben Whitfield, Big Ben I call him, gave a marvelous sermon several years ago at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jackson Hole based on this book, The Heart Code, I guess and uh, showing how God uses the term heart and how they found that your heart is so uh, powerfully influenced and so on and involved in what you do more than people have realized in past years. But covering your heart, your, your chest, you see, is the breastplate and what is righteousness? Well, there are many places that show it. I'm just giving you the simplified scripture. That's not the only place it is. But Psalm 119, verse 172 all thy commandments, plural, are righteousness. That's what righteousness is. So you've got to be living God's way. You see, that's going to protect you, be your breastplate. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A lot of very sincere people in the church of God today said, well, Mr. Armstrong finished the work and there's no more work to do. Well, they could not be more wrong. Mr. Armstrong himself said in the last few days of his life several times, including telling us in the Council of Elders, which Mr. Apartheid will remember, that if anything happened to him, we'd better carry on the work. And Mr. Apartheid was there too, I think, when Mrs. Armstrong died, weren't you? And that was kind of interesting because that's the way she said it, and that setting was very uh, powerful to me. She was dying, and she knew it somehow, and uh, she, she said, well, fellas, I won't be here very much longer but uh, she said, you fellows go on and finish the work. She said, that's what God wants done. And that's what she said. And certainly that's what we ought to be doing. And God tells us that. He doesn't say preach the gospel to all the world until Paul died. He doesn't say preach the gospel to all the world until Peter died. He didn't say preach the gospel to all the world until Mr. Armstrong died. No, he never says that. We're to preach the gospel and he will bless us if when he comes he finds us so doing. As you know the scripture there, I think it's the end of Matthew 24. But that's very important to understand. So you're to be involved in getting out the gospel of the kingdom of God. That gives you something active to do. You don't just resist the bad. You get involved in the work. You do the good. Above all, taking the shield of faith. And brethren, that's something that protects you way out away from your body. Before the poison darts, you know, some of the pygmies used to shoot poison darts into people. And before the poison can even get in your body, you have this shield out here, you see, to protect you. And that's very important. Faith. You believe God is there. You believe God's word. You know that he is with you. He's guiding you. He's your father. He'll deliver you. He'll, he'll guide things for good. You know and you know that you know that. 
if you're a faithful Christian. You have the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan says to you in many ways, as he did to Adam and Eve, God's not fair. You young people growing up and you people around the world hearing this, God's not fair. He's not letting us, you know, my boys before they turned 21 were all concerned, and my older two sons the same way. Uh, God, that, they didn't say God was not fair, but they were bugged that they had to wait to 21, you know, to get their liquor uh, without any problem. <laughs> God is not fair. The law is not fair. No, that's not true. That's not true. It's better to wait. Some of them say God's not fair. Of course, lots of young people all over the world always that he doesn't let you just have sex without marriage. No, God is very fair. He knows you will be more happy yourself in the end by far if you will wait to find a mate with which you really relate and can share your hopes and dreams and your whole life with. That will mean so much more and be so much better than running around here and there defiling your heart, defiling your attitude and your emotions. It's not just your body. It's not just getting BD or AIDS. It's putting a, it's searing your mind and cheapening something that should be very special and very beautiful if rightly used in marriage. You're hurting yourself. God is not unfair in any of those things at all, period. But Satan is constantly put pumping that in the minds of young people and old people as well. So you've got to understand that. Take the helmet of salvation. What is that? Uh, well, of course, that salvation is, is being converted and having God's spirit. And God's Spirit does not come into your big toe. It comes into your mind. God's Holy Spirit comes into your mind and so you have that in your mind to guide the rest of your body. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's the only offensive weapon that you have? You have the sword of the Spirit. You come to study and study, which I hope you'll do and all of us do, and I need to do more. I mean that literally as a minister. I need to study more than I do. Mr. Armstrong used to tell us ministers several times, he said, fellows, we can get so involved in the administrative part of God's work, teaching our classes, writing these articles, having these meetings, making the decisions, that we don't just personally sit down and study and study and sort of quietly drink into the Bible for our personal benefit and pray to God on our knees. And all of us need to do more of that. Praying always... There it again, brethren, being in a spirit of prayer all day long, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we've got to be constantly in an attitude of prayer, a spirit of prayer, walking with God, walking with God. If we do that, Satan can't get at us. That's how we will overcome Satan the devil. So please understand, those things are so important to understand. Uh, remember back in Job, uh, Job was struck by Satan, and God said, you can do this or that, but don't take his life. God set the limits of, of Satan's power, and understand that. Satan does not have unlimited power. He can't kill us, he can't do anything unless God allows it at all, and God normally doesn't allow that whatever, as long as we're faithful to him. So we want to understand that basic thing about Satan the devil and uh, recognize that he is under God. Satan, I mean, uh, Job eventually prevailed and was vindicated because he was willing to humble himself and to fast and fast and pray and pray. And he had a certain amount of pride that God wanted to grind out of him. But in the end, you remember, God told all those men that accused Job that they were wrong. He said, my servant Job was right. And this young, one young man was kind of smarlick about this railing accusation he made against Job, got really sick or stricken with something. And Job, God said, if Job prays for you, I'll heal you. That was kind of humbling. Job had to pray for this guy. Then God healed him. And then God blessed Job with double all the things he had before. But Satan was allowed to humble him. God does allow Satan to do certain things within his will for many purposes that are right. Remember, brethren, Satan is the great counterfeiter. I do want you to get this one extra thought in your mind. Most of you know that we've said that, but please don't forget that. There are different churches and different groups around the world that seem so close, but they are so far away. 
the counterfeiters in the world can print a $20 bill or a $100 bill that will fool the vast majority of us. They don't print it with pink polka dots. You know that. It looks very, very much like the original. That's what Satan does. He comes along with something just a little bit off. Don't let that fool you. He's very clever in the way he does that. And so uh, we must understand that. And one of the articles, again, in today's paper showed that there are thousands of Americans and Britons, including some of these top movie stars and television stars they named, and uh, what's his name, uh, the uh, coach, uh, Phil Jackson of the Lakers, all going into Buddhism. They're going into Buddhism. And they think, well, that's the true religion, and that's really the best in all of this. Well, you know, that's, it seems so strange to us. How could they possibly do that? Well, they couldn't, except Satan is the god of this world, and he can screw up your mind so easily, so easily, that it's kind of frightening. As I told you, I met a young woman who was the sister of a woman that used to be a babysitter for my older children at the airport. My wife and I were both getting back, and she was there. She used to sit in my class, and she is now attending one of these uh, evangelical churches right there in San Diego, and just explained it. said, I just looked at her, but I was tired. I just got, I thought... I'd like to preach to you, but I can't. It won't do any good. But she sat in my class and Mr. Armstrong's sex class, and her very sister was one of the stewardesses on the airplane, and they knew Mr. Armstrong well, and they, just, they split away. And all is gone. No Sabbath, no holy days, no nothing. And it's gone. Blotted out of their minds. Satan is a very, very powerful being. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, this is very important in the passage. Again, Mr. Armstrong commented on a number of times. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Brethren, sometimes God chastens us through circumstances. He will cause us, to, he will just jerk the rug right out from under us in our lives, in, our, in the work, whatever, some position, some opportunity, something, our job, our money. Our family, can, he can really hurt us. Sometimes it will be a physical sickness. We don't always know. But he rebukes and chastens every son he loves. And he says, none of that seems uh, joyful at the time, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Let's understand, all of us are here to learn lessons. And if you get bitter... When God allows something bad to happen to you, you say, well, God, you're wrong. You shouldn't allow this bad thing to happen. You're out of here. And you're going to be out of God's kingdom. You'll eventually have to bitterly repent of that or you'll never be in God's kingdom. I'm not drawing any line on that. I mean, that's it. You will have to repent of that attitude or you won't even be in God's kingdom. You have got to yield to God and say, God, my life is your life and I mean it. And let God rebuke and chasten you and fashion and mold you and work with you and work with you and work with you or you will not be in God's kingdom. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Get down on your knees. Lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting as we read in another place. Pray to God. Pray your heart out. Pursue peace with all men, verse 14, and holiness. Try to be like God without which no one will see the Lord looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That is such a vital, important thing to understand. Each one of us will face trials in our lives. You may be upset at some brother in the church. I remember... It worked for good. All things worked for good. I met my wife going up to Bakersfield because there's a feud up there among the deacons. One of them was exalting himself and the other was so mad they couldn't stand it. And that was the reason. I thought it was something else. But I went up to quell that problem. They sent me up as a minister, area minister or whatever title I had at that time. And I was able to help some, although most of them had already gone. But at any rate, I stabilized the church as a whole, I hope, or helped do that. But uh, these people were really upset, and they left the whole church. I think four out of five deacons left, never came back. Just completely left the church up there. It was a very sad thing because of just one deacon exalting himself, and the minister didn't see it, and he let this one guy get do the most stuff. 
Well, now, here's Mr. Pyle. He's the lead deacon. And what if Mr. Davis were a deacon? And uh, what if uh, Mr. Bardot and, and Mr. Amon and, and Mr. Uh, uh, Bomer and others here were deacons? And they were all literally gnashing their teeth. I wish I had William Pyle's job. He's getting to pass out more song books than I am. He's leading the singing even once in a while. Boy, am I mad! I'm going to leave the whole church of God! Can you imagine that? Now, I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit, but you see what I mean. That's the principle. So mad because one man's doing a little bit more in the job of a deacon, and people gnash their teeth, and they leave the whole church because of jealousy of one another sometimes. They get bitter, a spirit of bitterness. And then some member will get bitter at a minister because he allowed this to happen, or they'll get bitter because the minister corrected them. So-and-so corrected me and told me I was wrong. Well, what is a minister supposed to do? Tell you you're right all the time? I can't help you if I can't tell you once in a while when you're wrong. Remember the Apostle Paul, before he died, the very last chapter he wrote says, Rebuke, correct, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You correct people? Do they like it? Not always. But they better go home and pray about it and get their attitude right, you see. They should. And never, ever get a spirit of bitterness. Some people got bitter at Mr. Armstrong way back in 1952. I was brought down from, from Portland, Oregon. I'd just been ordained an evangelist, so I wasn't being put down, but I was brought down to help settle down the student body because there's a young man that was upsetting two or three others. A couple of the men later became leading ministers. But they were being misled by this guy because of Armstrong extravagance. And they got bitter. Really, I talked to them. There was a spirit of bitterness. If you were there and you saw Armstrong extravagance in 1952, you would laugh. <laughs> there wasn't any Armstrong. I mean, uh, you know, Mr. Armstrong had so little compared to what we had later, but they thought that was Armstrong extravagance. And this teacher was helping age egg it on, old uh, Molly Ennessy, I think his name was, and he was uh, not converted, of course, but he would talk about the Heavenly Father and his son with a red chariot because Mr. Armstrong was the leader and Dick Armstrong had a little... Plymouth convertible, not a Cadillac convertible, a little Plymouth convertible, and that was the son of the Heavenly Father with the red chariot, so they had to pick on that and pick on that and pick on that. Armstrong extravagance. You're driving at Plymouth or Chevrolet. You see what I mean? I'll tell you, Satan is so clever, he can get people upset about almost anything and twist their minds around, and then they're out of here. They're out of God's church, and they're probably out of the first resurrection, unless God brings them back through some powerful chastening later on. Never let a spirit of bitterness get a hold of you. Don't do that. That is a powerful tool of Satan the devil. It really, really is, brethren, and you need to understand. Now back in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, God says here, Therefore submit to God, this is verse 7, chapter 4 of James Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the key. You have got to actively resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's your part. You've got to constantly walk with God in study and prayer and meditation and fasting. You'll get tired of hearing those words, but that's too bad. <laughs> Just do it. Study, prayer, meditation, and fasting. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Fast! Please, Father, clean me up. Help me get over this wrong attitude. You've got to mourn before God. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And going through the whole Bible on this subject, brethren, I have found this. It hit me more this time than ever before. That is one of the basic keys to overcoming the devil. Humble the self. The minute you get proud, as it says in Proverbs, pride goes before a fall. When you say, boy, I know everything, and I'm doing real great, and we're better than you, and blah, 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 and you have this attitude, pride goes before a fall, and Satan can get at you. So you've got to really understand that. Turn to 1 Peter chapter one, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, he's been talking to the elders, and I talks to the younger, 
submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, older and younger, of course, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, I'm clothed with the suit of clothes, but I've also got to be, and you have got to be clothed with humility. You've got to be surrounded with the realization that you're so tiny, you're so small, we're just a little piece of dust out here on this little ball in space we call the earth, and apart from God, we're nothing. We're just nothing apart from God, and really deeply understand that. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you when? Next week? No. In due time. In his time, he knows best. I'm very anxious to get the work going powerfully tomorrow. All around me know that. But that's up to God. I can't do that. He's the one who takes care of these things. I can work as hard as I can work, but that's not going to do it. I don't have that kind of ability. Only God can do that. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, so you've got to be alert. Be vigilant, watchful. Watch the devil. He's a roaring lion, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I've seen him devour people, and it hurts when he does it. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Again, like James said, your part is to actively fight the fight. Resist him knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who calls you, and I often comment on this, I don't know very much Greece, but Greek, but I've studied a little bit of it, and the Greek word here is ice. It doesn't mean in, it means into, going into. They pictured in the Greek textbooks as a circle, the arrow going into the circle. God has called you not to the foot of the mountain to see God's glory. God has called you into to share His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, you will have to suffer a while. And don't get upset. Don't get impatient too much. Don't get a spirit of bitterness. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So brethren, use these tools to overcome Satan. Know your adversary. Know he's there. Know he is the God of this whole society, including its religions, its politics, its education, everything. And he will deceive people into thinking they're born to be a homosexual. Or he'll deceive them into thinking because this or that religion has good things in it that they can follow along with that and not worry about whether it's totally true or not. A little bit of air here and there. A little bit of cyanide in your drink. Doesn't work too good. Think about how Satan is alive. He's very clever. And resist him because he is like a roaring lion. And we want to do our part. But our Father in heaven wants us to come into his eternal glory. He wants us to be his sons. And he will deliver us. He will never put on us any temptation, any temptation from any source that we're not able to bear. But will always provide a way of escape. So let's do that and let's be in God's kingdom.